Okay. Two baptisms, now a message. Okay, as, let's see, where are we at on the slide? Oh, the slide is already up. We've already done the prayer. So we're just going to go right into the message here. Well, as you can see on the slide, uh, I want to really talk about the uh, returning to our Hebraic roots and what that really means. You know, one of the biggest challenges we have as a ministry is trying to convince those in nominal worship that this uh, Greco-Roman theology that we find is not what we see in Scripture. And I will say some are waking up to this, some are realizing it, and you know, we see some, some acknowledging the Sabbath and the feast days today. I think that's picking up steam, but we certainly see a lot of people still, still lost. Now, before we open up to uh, Scripture and uh, see this connection, I want to talk about this Grecianized faith and how it really began. You know, it's so, so important that we understand how these things uh, occurred, how they developed. You know, most scholars and historians will acknowledge that Christianity began within what they would call Judaism. And this is one of the things that so many people are unaware of. They, they have no knowledge, no concept that the early assembly would have been viewed as a Jewish religion. You know, the Messiah and those who followed him would have been viewed as another sect. You had the Herodians and the Sadducees and the Pharisees and all these, or they would have simply been viewed as those who followed Yahshua the Messiah. But it certainly would have been viewed as a Hebraic or Jewish faith. You know, this concept of another religion outside of the promise given to Israel of old would have been very foreign to the apostles, would have been foreign to the Messiah. You know, as we see in the New Testament, they were keeping the Sabbath and feast days. And that's something, you know, it's amazing because we, we simply need to open up the book and read what it says to understand what they were doing, how they were worshiping. And what we see is they were keeping the Sabbath. They were keeping the feast days. You know, this was even true after the Messiah's death. You know, we see the Apostle Paul, for example, observing the Sabbath and many of the feast days in the book of Acts. You know, in some of these cases, it's like 20 years after the death of the Messiah. So why was he still doing this if this Hebraic faith was no longer important? So that we understand, I want to ask what gave rise to this Romanized, to this Grecianized faith that we see today in nominal worship. You know, even though the history is somewhat sketchy, it's clear that after the apostles uh, died and, and after their time, the things in the church changed very quickly. Matter of fact, you know, we see from the New Testament that some of the change began very early on. You know, even during the time of Paul, they were talking about heresies within the assemblies. But again, this increased and became worse as time continued within the assembly. Now, what was the reason for this change? Well, you know, as the church grew, so we're beyond, at this point, the New Testament assembly. We're beyond the point of the apostles. As our church grew, so did its Jewish, non-Jewish converts. Now, what's important to realize is that many of these non-Jewish Gentile converts brought with them a Greco-Roman mindset. As this influence became more dominant, it moved the church away from its previous Jewish heritage to a more Grecianized philosophy, to a more Grecianized faith. You know, along with this, the church engaged in what's called a syncretism. It's a very important word for us, syncretism. What does that mean? 
where syncretism in this simplest form is the blending of different ideas, the blending of different beliefs. Or in this example, it's the blending of paganism with church theology. Now, it's amazing. We see this so often in the church. You know, let me share with some examples with you. Sunday's the day of worship was adopted from paganism. This was never a day they kept in the New Testament. There's no evidence of them keeping this day. You know, during the time of Rome, many worshipped the sun, the S-U-N. Many worshipped the sun. Matter of fact, we're going to see a quote here in just a moment that during the time of Rome, it was considered a solar monotheism. That's very unique, very distinct. You know, the sun was worshipped pretty common throughout the uh, throughout different civilizations. But to, to have a solar monotheism is something very unique, and we'll see that here in just a moment. You know, in fact, the word Sunday, what does it mean? It literally means day of the sun. And we know that so many, Constantine and others, were sun worshipers. Now, Christmas is another example that is also connected to paganism and also to sun worship. It derives from the worship of Sol Invictus. Sol Invictus, where that literally means unconquered sun. This was the sun god of the Roman uh, empire, and also the patron of soldiers. Now, on December 25th, Rome, to honor this deity, held a special observance for Sol Invictus. Here's a uh, slide from the uh, Britannica, and here's what it says about Sol Invictus. This is during the later periods of Roman history, sun worship gained in importance and ultimately led to what has been called a solar monotheism. You know, for me, that's very distinct. It's very important to recognize that during the time of Rome, during this late history in Rome, that sun worship was very prevalent. And we see this within nominal worship today. goes on to say, The Feast of Sol Invictus, Unconquered Sun, on December 25th was celebrated with great joy. And eventually this date was taken over by the Christians as Christmas, the birthday, it says, of Christ. So we see here an example of this Sol Invictus. Now, I'm not sure if you can see it, but there's a description on this photo, and it means, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing this right, but Dies Natalis Solus Invicti. And it means, literally, birthday of the unconquered sun. So that's how Rome worshipped. And as we see from the Britannica, Christianity eventually picked this up, and they adopted this worship within their own. Again, this is what we call syncretism. It's the blending of different ideas, different philosophies within a different system. So in this case, it's a blending of paganism, again, with, with Christianity or with nominal worship. Now, the concept of the Trinity is also rooted within paganism. The fact is, you know, many ancient civilizations believed in a triune system. And this is what many really don't realize today. Long before, by the way, the existence of Christianity. Let me share with you a reference. This is from the uh, Two Babylons, Alexander Hislop. And he says there, will anyone after this say that the Roman Catholic Church must still be called Christian because it holds the doctrine of the Trinity? goes on to say, so did the pagan Babylonians, so did the Egyptians, so did the Hindus at this hour in the very sense in which Rome does. So again, just because they hold to this belief does not make them unique. It simply shows that they've adopted these different ideas from pagan religions prior to them. And this on the slide here, you can see an example. This is the Egyptian trinity, Horus, Osiris, and Isis. Horus, by the way, was the uh, son of Osiris and Isis. But again, it was this triune deity that, that we see within the Egyptian religion. Now, this is nothing new. Again, we know that this is found in many other civilizations. This is found even within the Hindus, as we see from this 
from this quote. So why did the church adopt this synchronistic behavior? Why did they do this? What was the motivation for them doing this? Or in short, it did so to placate or pacify the pagans that were being, quote, converted into the church. That was the reason they did this. You know, if you think about it, though, this really is no different from what we're seeing today. You know, we're not seeing anything different today in, in, in the church. You know, a great example of this is a number of churches now accepting the LGBT community, not only within the church, but within its leadership. You know, so many churches, they don't see anything wrong with having a homosexual as a, as a minister, even though Yahweh calls this an abomination. Now, as the early church grew and accepted many of these pagan ideas, it pushed out the Jewish or the Hebraic foundation from where it arose. And when this happened, there was a great divide between Judaism and Christianity. What was originally another sect or group within Judaism morphed into a very different and foreign religion. You know, there was even a time in Roman history when they did not recognize the difference between Judaism and Christianity. And for that short time, Christianity was not persecuted. But once they realized that there was a difference between, between Judaism and Christianity, Christianity was persecuted because they had no respect for Christianity. And I'm not going to go into all that, but they had a kind of a different view on what that was. And again, this deviated from the original faith. Now, I want to share one more quote with you. This is a book on the history of Christianity. And I think it really says a lot about the change and how it morphed into something very different, but also about the beginning, how it originated. So it says this, Christianity may have developed in the political menu of Rome, so it, so it began during the time of Rome, and may have fa- had to face the intellectual environment created by the Greek mind. You see, I'm going to stop there for just a moment. There's a uh, saying, and it goes something like, you know, the Romans conquered the Greeks, but the Greeks conquered the Romans philosophically. Because so much of the great culture was passed on to the Romans. And that's what we see here. Even though this was during the time of Rome, it was the Greek mind and influence, that, that philosophy that affected the early church. goes on to say, but its relationship to Judaism was much more intimate. You see, it was much closer to Judaism when it began. Judaism may be thought of, of as a stock on which the rose of Christian, Christianity was to bloom. Judaism provided the heredity of Christianity and for a short time even gave the infant religion shelter. You see, there was no distinction for some time. The Jewish people still further prepared the way for the coming of Christianity by providing the infant church with a sacred book, the Old Testament. Even a casual study of the New Testament will reveal Messiah's and the apostles' deep indebtedness to the Old Testament and their reverence for it as the word of Yahweh to man. You see, they respected, they were devoted to the Old Testament. It was the only book they had for a long time. It says the books of the Old Testament and the books of the New Testament given under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit were to be the living literature of the church. Now it says here that Judaism was to be thought of as a stock on which the rose of Christianity was to bloom. I really like that quote. I think it says a lot about Christianity, about nominal worship, about how it originated within history. You know, the fact is, without Judaism and the Tanakh Old Testament, 
there would be no new, there would be no Christianity today. There would be no New Testament faith today. You know, it's so important to realize that, again, the church began within Judaism and originally was not viewed as another religion. It was viewed as simply another sect of this faith. This departure from Judaism or the Hebraic faith took time. And that's something most people don't realize. You know, this was not something done overnight. This took time. Now, why is this important? Well, it's important for those who are searching for the original faith of the Messiah and the apostles. Because that's really what we're trying to do here. People ask, who are you? What do you believe? What's, what denomination are you part of? Or we tell them we're simply trying to follow the same faith as our Savior. We're simply trying to return back to those truths that we find rooted within the New Testament prior to all the changes. And believe me, we all know there's been a lot of changes over the time. We want to follow in the examples of Yahshua, our Savior. We want to do it his way. And we want to deviate, if you will, from all the man-made tradition that we see. Now, we've already mentioned, we see examples of Yahshua and the apostles keeping the Sabbath, keeping the feast days, keeping the commandments. You know, in fact, for those who may not know, this is a really amazing statistic, if you will. The word Sabbath is found 60 times in the New Testament. Raise your hand if you knew that. 60 times in the New Testament. 60 times in the New Testament of the King James do we find the word Sabbath. That's an amazing thing, isn't it? That we find the word Sabbath so many times, and yet people say that the Sabbath is not important. And yet we find the word itself 60 times. I've done the count. I've taken out the strongs. I've gone through. I've counted the instances. 60 occurrences of this word. Now, one of the best examples, I want to open up to the word now, we find for this Hebraic connection is from our Savior. And you know, a message like this, we have to really begin with our Savior, Yahshua, and what he said. For the most part, we're going to be focusing on Paul telling what he said about this, but I want to open up with, again, something Yahshua said. John chapter 4, verse 22. Yahshua says there, ye worship, you know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. Salvation is of the Jews. Now, before we talk about this phrase and, and the intent behind these words, I want to explain what led up to this point. Because, again, it's important to understand. Yahshua came to Zakar, a city in the land of Samaria. Well, there he meets a Samaritan woman. They are well. In his discussion, this woman explains to Yahshua that while the Jews worshiped in Jerusalem, that her and her people, they would worship in this mountain. Now, the mountain she's referring to is likely Mount Gerizim. Yahshua replied here by confirming that there was coming a day when believers would not only worship in Jerusalem or Mount Gerizim, but would worship Yahweh in spirit and truth. In fact, he told her in this passage that now is that day. And I don't know if you've read this. I'm sure you've read most of it, most of you. But I don't know if you've caught that now is that day. And I believe that this, is, this was a prophetic statement by our Savior foreshadowing a time when believers would worship Yahweh throughout this world, when believers would be worshiping Yahweh in every continent of this world, as I believe we're seeing in this day and age. Now, Yahshua says here in this passage, salvation is of the Jews. Salvation is of the Jews. Notice here that he did not say that salvation was of the Greeks or salvation was of the Romans. 
So what did he mean by this? When again he said salvation is of the Jews. Or number one, it's a reference to himself. Our Savior was a Jew. You know, some people today, they forget about that fact. I think some people are convinced that our Savior was a Greek or a Roman. No, our Savior was a Jew. So certainly salvation is of the Jews because Yahshua was a Jew. But I believe also here that we see a connection between the Jewish or Hebraic promise. You see, Yahshua recognized that salvation was rooted within this Hebraic word. Understand that it was never his intent to begin a new faith, something different from what we find in the Old Testament. If anything, he came to strengthen the Old Testament. You know, for example, in the Sermon on the Mount, he said that he to even look and lust after a woman was the same as committing adultery with her in your heart. That's what he says. Well, it's not doing away with the commandment. That's strengthening the commandment. That's applying a, an application that most were not. So by this example, and many more like it, you know, we can find so many instances of, of Yahshua strengthening Yahweh's word. It shows the reverence he had for the Old Testament. You know, as believers, it's important that we understand this point and that we never depart from this promise, that we realize that the faith we believe, that the word we believe in is Hebraic, is Jewish in that sense. You know, shockingly, surprisingly, some of the best examples to show this connection is from the Apostle Paul, the supposed champion of those who believe is responsible for changing church theology, throwing out the word and the law and the commandments. No, Paul never did this. I want to start with an example in Acts 24.14. Real important example, very important passage to uh, be familiar with. But here Paul says, and he's being, being confronted by the Jews, and he says, But this I confess unto you, that after the way which they call heresy... Have we ever, can we relate to this? Have we ever been um, characterized as being part of a cult, a, her, a, heretic, a heretic of some sort? Where Paul says, you know, what you're calling a heresy, so worship I the Elohim of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets. You know, even though many accused Paul of belonging to a heresy, which again was like a cult, we see here that he fully acknowledged the faith of his forefathers. He says here that he believed all things written in the law and the prophets. So many today have this impression that Paul began a new faith, a new religion, again, based on these Greco-Roman concepts and ideas. But as we see here, this simply is not true. Paul was not an advocate of the Grecian faith. Instead, he relied on the faith that he was taught from a child, the same Hebraic faith I'm sure that his mother and his grandmother believed in. He embraced his Hebraic roots, including, as we see here, he says specifically, the law and the prophets. You know, it's amazing that so many view this man as an antinomian. Antinomian means against the law. That they see this man as against the commandments when he says many times that he was not opposed to the commandments. We'll see some examples as we go through this message. You know, if people understood this one truth about Paul, that he was not trying to begin a new faith, that he was not deviating from his Hebraic roots, that he was not deviating from the Jewish faith that he understood and was, was raised with, 
I believe that we would see and hear a very different message from today's pulpits. We would see a drastically different faith from what we see today. We would see a faith much more inclined to the Hebraic faith, embracing the Old Testament, not trying to dissolve it or remove it. Now, in Philippians 3, verse 5, we see Paul gives us somewhat of an autobiography. And he explains who he is. So I want to read that in Philippians. Philippians 3, 5 through 6. Paul begins there by saying, Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, and Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the assembly, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. So notice what Paul says here. He confirms, number one, that he was circumcised on the eighth day according to the law. You know, the concept of circumcision was very important to the Jewish people, still is. Very important concept and precept within the Jewish faith. You know, as a side note, it's just a a bonus here. Medical science has now proven that vitamin K, which coagulates the blood, is produced through the, or from the fifth through seventh days of life. Do you think that's coincidence? You know, it's an amazing truth when you think about it. Some people look at the Old Testament as a bunch of fairy tales that was not divinely inspired. How did a bunch of nomads know not to circumcise until the eighth day when the blood, would, blood had, could fully coagulate? Well, there's no way they could have known. Now, in Philippians 3, verse 5 here through 6, we also see additional truths. Paul goes on here to say that he was from the stock of Israel, also from the tribe of Benjamin. So he was a Benjaminite. He was from the tribe of Benjamin. Goes on to say that he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. You know, this is kind of a way to emphasize something, Hebrew of Hebrews, the mentioning of it twice. And I think this was to show and emphasize his Hebraic heritage. Paul wanted everybody to understand that he was a Hebrew in every sense. That's what he's trying to convey here. Now notice what he says next. He says, as touching the law of Pharisee and as touching righteousness, blameless. Does this sound to you like a man who, again, was opposed to his Jewish heritage, who was opposed to the Hebraic faith that he was raised with, to the commandments that were observed by his mother and grandmother and the forefathers before them, where the answer should obviously be no. You know, this does not sound like a man who's trying to, trying to uh, rewrite a different faith. Now, this same apostle also wrote the book of Romans. And as we all know, the book of Romans is misunderstood in many ways today. Where in this book, he explains many things pertaining to the Jews and to this Hebraic promise. So we're going to focus on the book of Romans throughout the remainder of this message. And uh, I want to begin with Romans 3 verse 1. Romans 3, verse 1 through 2, it says, What advantage then hath a Jew? Or what profit is there of circumcision? Much every way, chiefly because that unto them were committed the oracles of Elohim. Now, you know, we talked about circumcision here. I believe circumcision, we believe here that circumcision is now accomplished as we just witnessed through baptism in Yahshua's name. So circumcision is important. Or he also asks here, what benefit of, is there of being a Jew? Have you ever considered this? Have you ever thought about why Paul would even ask this? Why does he bring this out? Why does he convey this to the Romans? Or what was his response? Where he explains here that they were given the oracles of Elohim. That's the benefits. 
the Jews were given the oracles of Elohim. Now, this word oracles comes from the Greek logion, and it means an utterance of Yahweh. An utterance of Yahweh. What do you suppose this is referring to when it says utterance of Yahweh? The oracles. Or what it's referring to is the commandments. They were given the commandments. They were given the Torah, and that is the benefit of being a Jew, according to Paul. That they were given the word of Yahweh. You know, let's think about this for just a moment. If the law was no longer necessary, relevant in the New Testament, why is Paul even mentioning this? Why is he speaking about the Jews? Why is he speaking about the law? Why is he speaking about any benefit all, at all? Because, again, according to many in nominal worship, this is dead and gone. There's no longer any reason for this. Where obviously he understood that the commandments were still very much relevant in the new. This shows that we don't see a different faith. We don't see this Grecianized, Romanized faith. No, we see something very different. We see a continuation of the same Hebraic promise that we find in the Old Testament. For this reason, he again points out here the benefit of being a Jew. You know, keep in mind also that the tribe of the, the, uh, Judah, Jew, from the tribe of Judah, was only one of the 12 tribes. There was 11 other tribes involved in this discussion. At this point, though, the only tribe left. Of course, Benjamin was there, but the, but the word Jew became synonymous with, with those from Judah and also Benjamin. So that's why it says Jew. Now, starting in Romans 2, verse 25, he um, shows a distinction between two different Jews, two different kinds of Jews. You know, some people ask questions about Jews and what the word means. The word Jew is, can be viewed in many different ways. And here Paul shows an example of that. It says here in Romans, starting in 2, verse 25, For circumcision ver uh, verily profits if thou keep the law. Again, why would a man be talking about the law here if supposedly these things are done away with? But if thou be a breaker of the law, thy circumcision is made uncircumcision. Therefore, if the uncircumcision keep the righteousness of the law, shall not his uncircumcision be counted for circumcision? I shall not uncircumcision, which is by nature, if it will not fulfill the law, judge thee, who by the letter and circumcision does transgress the law. For he is not a Jew, which is one outwardly. Now, I want you to really listen to what he says here. He is not a Jew, which is outwardly, neither is that circumcision, which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew, which is one inwardly, and a circumcision is out of the heart and the spirit and not in the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of Elohim. So what do, what do we see here from Paul? Where he's making a separation here between Jews by birth and Jews by faith. In other words, those who are born into the Jewish line, genealogy, and those who are adopted within this genealogy. You know, when he speaks about circumcision, he's referring to natural-born Jews or Israelites. On the other hand, when he speaks about the uncircumcision, he's referring to those non-Jews, Gentiles, those who were not a part of this promise. Now, notice what he says about when the uncircumcision obey the commandments. He says here that when the uncircumcision obeys the commandments, that they are now circumcised 
and then they are also inward Jews. Do you see that? Does that make sense? It's so important that we understand this connection, this concept that when an uncircumcised person, meaning a non-Jew, right, obeys the commandments, that that uncircumcision is now circumcision or circumcised, and they are counted as an inward Jew because they are doing those things that they should be doing. They are honoring Yahweh and how they're living. So this is an important concept to understand. You know, through this example, we find the word Jew used in reference to both a native-born Israelite or a native-born Jew and also a Jew who is a believer in Yahshua the Messiah, a person who's keeping the commandments and having faith in the Messiah. It also shows that the promise remained Hebraic in the New Testament. Again, if the church deviated from this and went to this Grecianized, Hellenized mindset, why would they be speaking about the law or circumcision or Jews? We need to be speaking about the Greeks and the Romans and Greek philosophy. But we don't see that here. We don't see that. I want to turn now to Galatians 3, verse 27. We've actually heard this and seen this now three times today. But here again, Paul really focuses on on what it means to be a believer. It says, For as many of you as have been baptized into Messiah have put on Messiah, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Messiah Yahshua. And if you be Messiahs, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So Paul begins here by talking about baptism. You know, we've already talked about this. He shows that when we're immersed into Yahshua's name, we put on Messiah. We were talking about this in the Bible study. And the only way we become part of Messiah is through baptism into Yahshua's name. There's no other formula. There's no other way. There's no chant we can do. There's no words we can speak. The only way we become part of Yahshua the Messiah is through baptism into his name. We find here that those who die to Messiah shall also share in the likeness of his resurrection. We see that in Scripture in Romans 6, where we see also that when we go through those waters, as we've already talked about, that our old man dies and we rise as new creatures. Now, we also find here that there's no distinction within the body of Messiah. He goes on to say that there's no Jew, there's no Greek, there's no male, there's no female. He says, for we are all one in Messiah. So we see here that with race or gender, There's no difference when speaking about salvation through our Savior. We all have the same opportunity. doesn't matter if we're male. doesn't matter if we're female. doesn't matter what our ethnicity is. We all have the same opportunity to achieve the promise through the Messiah. And this, that really is the message here. Now I want to focus on what Paul says here in closing. He confirms here that those who are immersed, those baptized in Yahshua the Messiah, that they're also heirs of who? It says here that they're heirs of Abraham. You know, I believe that Abraham was the greatest of all the patriarchs we find in the Old Testament. It was through him the scripture says all the families of the earth would be blessed. Now we know ultimately that this is a fulfillment of Yahshua, what he did, with Yahshua being from the line of Abraham. But certainly we know that there, was, there were many promises given to Abraham that still is very relevant to this day. 
Now, if this tie to Abraham in the New Testament doesn't show a connection to our Hebrew roots, I'm not sure what would. Again, if not, why would Paul mention this? Why would Paul discuss Abraham or a Jew or the fact that this is where our promises rooted? You know, the belief that the church or the Old Testament, I should say, was only for Israel and the New Testament only for the church could not be further from the truth. This is what many call replacement theology. But this isn't right. You know, as we know, the Messiah and the apostles viewed the Old Testament as inspired, as authoritative. They kept, again, the Sabbath. They kept the feast days. And, you know, we can even see examples like Peter keeping the clean foods. You know, they, they turn that around. In Acts 10, most of us are familiar with that verse. Peter sees that she come down and hears this voice out of heaven. You know, rise, Peter, kill and eat. Here's it three times. But what they miss is what Peter said. Peter said, I've never eaten anything common or unclean. And this was 10 years after Yahshua's ascension. Did he just miss the memo? I mean, why is it that Peter did not understand that a ham ham sandwich was now permissible to eat? No, Peter said, I've never done so. I've never eaten anything unclean. You see, he understood that. So again, we see this concept of this Hebraic foundation. You know, Peter also, though, he shows even the New Testament, we see the authority of Yahweh's word. Because Peter, in, in his second epistle, compares Paul's writings to Scripture. So again, as we've already seen, both Old and New Testament are very relevant to believers today. We need both. We need both. And both were recognized. Well, I want to turn out of Romans 9. Romans 9, verse 4, another passage showing a very strong connection to our Hebraic or Jewish heritage. It says, Who are Israelites? To whom pertains the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of Elohim and the promises? How does Paul here define an Israelite? He lists six attributes. Number one, he says that they received the adoption. In the Greek, this literally means a sonship to our Father in heaven. It's a type of sonship. And in Exodus 4, verse 22, Israel is called Yahweh's son or firstborn. Again, there's a belief out there, I mentioned it, replacement theology. The states that the church has now replaced Israel of old. You know, as we see here, though, Israel received the adoption or sonship. Nowhere in the New Testament do we see this negated or this promise removed. It was given to Israel. It is still of Israel. And we'll see this as we go through this message. Instead of Israel being removed, those non-Israelites, as we'll see in the next passage or the next one after that, is adopted into this same promise. They're grafted into this same promise. Number two, it says here that they receive the glory. Now, this word glory comes from the Greek doxa, and it refers really to Yahweh's divine presence, his uh, splendor. Number three, they receive the covenants, it says. You know, most people assume that there's only two covenants. You have the old and you have the new. But, you know, this isn't the case. You know, we, we see many, many covenants in Scripture. Noah received a covenant. Abraham received a covenant. Moses, of course, received a covenant. David received one. The list goes on. 
We see many, many covenants. But the one thing all of those covenants had in common was this. They were all based on this Hebraic faith. The same Hebraic faith that was given to Abraham of old. Number four, it says here that they were given the law or commandments. You know, this is an important one to realize. And remember, this is Paul speaking. This is a book of Romans. Where are we talking about covenants and, and commandments? You know, contrary to popular belief, the Messiah and the apostles, including Paul, obeyed the commandments. For example, Paul in Romans 7 verse 12 said that the law was holy, just, and good. Isn't that an amazing statement? Does that sound like a man who, is, who opposes the Jewish heritage that he was raised with? Awesome. Revelation 12, uh, 12, 17, 14, 12, and 22, 14, we find there a warning that we're to obey the commandments of Yahweh. Last book in the New Testament. And one reference is the last chapter of the New Testament. And in promising to those who obey the commandments that they're going to receive a, a right to the tree of life, to Yahweh's kingdom. So again, this notion of the commandments no longer being applicable in the New Testament could not be further from the truth. Number five, it says here that the Israelites were given the service of Elohim, where this simply refers to his worship, which continues today. And the last one here is the promises. So this refers to the blessings, to the promises that Yahweh gave to those in the Old Testament and continue today. You know, one of the biggest fallacies today is that, again, these promises are negated that these promises are no longer relevant, that these promises are null and void. Well, that's not the case. Our faith is predicated upon the faith we find in the Old Testament. Our faith today is based on what was given to Abraham of old. It's nothing new. It's not different. It's not something, something brand new. No, it's something from old, as we find here. Now, Romans uh, 9, verse 6, verse 6, Paul confirms what he means by Israelite. So here's what he says, Romans 9, verse 6. He says, Not as though the word of Elohim hath taken none effect. Listen to this. He says, For they are not all Israel, which are of Israel. So what does Paul mean here with this? Or what he's saying is this. Not all native-born Israelites are believers. Does that make sense? Not all is, Not all Israel is of Israel. In other words, not all native-born Israelites are true believers. Not all Israelites obey the commandments and have faith in Yahshua the Messiah. You know, Revelation 12, verse 17 and 14, 12 both show that as a believer we must do two things. We must obey the commandments and we must have faith in our Savior. Now, if we're missing either one of these, if we're neglecting either one of these, we no longer qualify as a believer. So those who reject the Messiah or ignore the commandments are not true Israelites. They're not believers. Again, we see here Paul using an Israelite two different ways. He's using an Israelite as a native-born Israelite and also as a believer in the Messiah. You see, we are Israelites in the Messiah. Now, I generally don't, don't refer to myself as an Israelite, but this is a word that we can certainly use from a scriptural standpoint. You know, when we remove the Hebraic promise from our worship, we miss this foundation. And that's why this message is so important, to realize the heritage, to realize that this is not a Greco-Roman faith that we find in the New Testament, to realize that this is still a Jewish or Hebraic faith based on those concepts and principles that were given 
to Abraham long ago and continued throughout the ages. I'm going to close now with uh, Romans 11. I'm going to read quite a bit of Romans 11, 13 through 17. This is a very important passage by Paul. It explains this concept of being grafted in, essentially of being adopted within the family. So it says, For I speak to you Gentiles, and as much as I am the apostle of the Gentiles. And we understand that Paul, he was from the tribe of Benjamin, but he was an apostle to those non-Jews. He says, I magnify my office, if by any means I may provoke to emulation them which are my flesh, and might save some of them. So see, he was concerned about his own people, the Jews. For if the casting away of them be the reconciling of the world, what shall the receiving of them be but life from the dead? But if the first fruit be holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches be broken off, and thou being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them, and with them partakest of the root and fatness of the olive tree, boast not against the branches. So what he's saying is he's warning those non-Jews against boasting against those Jews who are no longer or refuse to accept the Messiah. But he says, But if thou boast, thou bearest not the root, but the root bear thee. Thou wilt say then, The branches are broken off, that I might be grafted in. Well, because of unbelief they were broken off. And thou standest by faith. Be not high-minded, don't be prideful, but fear. For if Elohim spared not the natural branches, those the Jews who rejected the Messiah, take heed, lest he also spare not thee. Behold, therefore, the goodness and severity of Elohim on them which fell severity, but toward thee goodness. If thou continue in his goodness, otherwise thou also shall be cut off. So notice, notice that last um, statement there. If, if we do not continue in the goodness of Yahweh, if we do not continue in the righteousness that we find within the word, it says that we will be cut off. You know, some of these people here have a cousin that's a big proponent of this. I was talking to you here recently, this once saved, always saved concept, that once we're saved, there's nothing we can do to lose that salvation. That's not what Paul says here. Paul says that if we become prideful, that if we boast, that if we become high-minded, and, and we don't follow and continue in this goodness and the righteousness of his word, that we too will be cut off according to Scripture. Now, as I said, this is a key passage when speaking about this Hebraic promise, how it works, how we're brought in to the promise. It begins here by confirming here that Paul was an apostle to the Gentiles. Now, even though he was an apostle to the Gentiles, we still see here that he had concern for his people. He was hoping to provoke some of his fellow Jews to jealousy in hopes that they would accept Yahshua and repent and be included within this promise. We also find here that because Israel forsook Yahweh, that the door, that the promise of salvation was opened to the Gentiles. Paul says again here, the casting away of them be the reconciling of the world. The casting away of who? The casting away of the Jews, of those who refused to believe, 
or the reconciling of the world. Who? The reconciling of the non-Jews, the Gentiles. You know, as a side note, we find this same message in Yahshua's parable, the wedding feast. Because a first guest representing the Jews refused to uh, come, symbolizing the rejection of the son, where Yahshua, the Messiah, the king, then sent servants into the highways and byways to find those who would come, representing those non-Jews, those Gentiles who would be grafted in, who would be adopted within this family. So the lesson we find is this. Because of Israel's rejection of Yahshua, the Messiah, Yahweh opened the door to Gentile believers. Now, this is not to say that Gentile believers could not be grafted in to this promise in the Old Testament. We know that we see examples of non-Jews being grafted in. And some of these non-Jews were very, very important. Boaz, or not Boaz, Ruth. Ruth is a great example, Moabite. And yet we know that she has a line in Yahshua's ancestry. So we see Jews, but we don't see Jews or not, uh, Gentiles, I should say, come into the promise as we see here. The door was opened wide to allow them to come in. So I think this is a difference, that after Yahshua's death, that the promise then was opened in large part to all people, to all nations. You know, in this passage, Paul uses an olive tree to, to illustrate how believers are grafted into this promise. He begins here by talking about a root and branches and says that the root and branches are holy. Now, what do you suppose a root symbolizes? There's some debate on this as to what the root may symbolize. I believe that the root symbolizes the promise given to Abraham of old. That is the root. It is the foundation. It is, it is where this promise began. He also mentions wild olive branches, for this is in reference to those Gentile believers who were being grafted, and you see they were not natural because they did not belong. But even though they did not belong, Yahweh still brought them in because, again, of the unbelief of the Jews. So what are some of the lessons we learn here? What are some of the principles we, we learn from this passage? Number one, the root of this promise, of this tree, is based on a Hebraic promise given to Abraham of old. Number two, not all native-born Israelites were cast aside. You see, not all natural branches were removed. You know, some have this concept that all the Jews rejected the Messiah. That's not the case. Or certainly there were many Jews who accepted Yahshua, but the majority did not. And we see that through this parable, through this lesson from Paul, that some of the natural branches remained. If all the branches, natural branches, were removed, that would indicate that all the Jews rejected him, but that's not the case. Number three, the wild olive branches are supported by the same Hebraic promise given to Israel of old because they're supported by the root, which is, again, that Hebraic promise, and they're supported by the other branches. So they are supported by this Hebraic promise. Number four, and the last one here is the olive branches, wild olive branches were grafted in. Paul warns here, don't be, don't be pompous. Don't be high-minded. Because as you were grafted in, you can also be grafted out. The same thing holds true, by the way, for those Jews. Those Jews who were removed could be included back in with this tree. You know, realizing that our faith is based on the same Hebraic 
promise given to Abraham of old is, is really pivotal. And also understanding how this change occurred, and that's why I wanted to uh, focus on that today some, to explain how this, how this religion that we call Christianity today morphed from what it was originally to what it is now. You see, it is very different. It is very, very different. The foundation is not the same because they have forsaken that Hebraic commitment. They have forsaken that Jewish connection that they had originally. You know, many people have this notion that the Messiah ushered in a completely new faith and throughout the Old Testament. Again, nothing could be further from the truth. They believe that it's now a faith based on Greco-Roman ideas with no resemblance to the Hebraic promise given to Abraham. Again, nothing could be further from the truth. You know, as we've seen from the Bible, the promise that we find in the Old and New Testament is always and will always be Hebraic. It will always be Jewish in the sense of belonging to the line of Abraham, belonging to the line of Judah, and not this Greco-Roman counterfeit that we find today with so many. And you know the reason I give this, I know most of us, many of us, we understand these things. Now, number one, it's a good review, but I'm hoping that somebody may hear this and they realize, you know, there's a difference between here, between our faith, what we believe in, what we're trying to do, and what we see in most religions and most churches today. It's so important that we get back to the root. So for those who are searching, for those who really want to know the truth, and, and that's why this is important because there are some people out there, they want to know what the truth is, and they want to know what originally was being done. And it's not hard to prove this, but so many people, they are blind they are deceived mainly because of 2,000 years of tradition. But this ministry is dedicated to removing that tradition, removing those man-made ideas, removing that man-made philosophy, and returning to the roots of Scripture, the purity of Scripture. And that purity, again, is not Greek or Roman, is not Greek. It's based on the same Hebraic promise that was given to Abraham of old. So I pray that it's been a blessing to you. I pray maybe something I've said has enlightened you, something you did not know. And maybe, again, for those who may be watching now or down the road, that they would consider this and repent and accept Yahshua and return back to that original Hebraic faith. May Yahweh bless.